Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Hardwick video and podcast. I'm Niall Maloney, and I'm joined today by my Chambers colleague, Colin Nugent. Uh, so today we'll be looking at the circumstances in which expert witnesses might be liable to pay a party's costs. So where do we start? Well, clearly the most common situation will be in any case that the losing party will be liable to pay the winner's costs. But as we know, Section 51 of the Senior Courts Act provides that the court shall have the full power to decide by whom the costs are paid. And CPR 46.2 reflects that in the civil procedure rules. We see much more regularly over the years, non-party costs ordered against, for example, solicitors and wasted costs, which has its own particular rules. Um, or even against directors in particular cases where that might apply. Uh, but what about other non-parties and specifically experts? And so, Colin, we, we've seen a couple of reported cases concerning experts paying costs in recent years, which we'll come on to and have a look at in a bit more detail later on today. But how long have the courts been dealing with these types of applications for experts to pay a party's costs. Thanks, Nye. Well, the, the costs against experts jurisdiction has always been there because pursuant to Section 51, costs against third parties can include experts. Rarely has, of course. Um, and perhaps one of the things which has prompted it recently can, is because of the advent of quogs. But I think the first reported case in which the costs against experts on the basis of the evidence they give to the court is way back in 2004. So after the CPR committee being in a case called Phillips and Symes, we'll put a link um, at the bottom of the podcast to all the relevant cases we talk about. And in Phillips and Symes, um, which was a decision of uh, Peter Smith, um, it was decided in that case that the expert um, should at least show causes why he shouldn't pay the costs at all. So I think that's probably the first case of the modern era in which experts have been at least potentially uh, required to pay costs. Can you remind us what was held in, in Phillips and Symes? Was there some sort of threshold for proposing orders for experts to pay costs? Well, well it's interesting that Phillips and Symes hasn't really featured much um, in the White Book um, since 2004, but in the last couple of years has been actually uh, re referred to and summarized. Um, so that was a case in which the expert concerned had maintained that the party for whom he was instructed uh, didn't have uh, capacity. That wasn't a PI case. And that led to an extraordinarily uh, large expenditure on costs as a consequence of that. And it had been always challenged throughout by the other side that in fact, the, the party for whom the expert concerned represented um, was was, rep um, was instructed, did have uh, capacity. So there was a big tussle about that. On the day of the trial, um, the expert completely folded uh, for reasons which weren't entirely explained. Um, and as a consequence of that, the party that had incurred sig significant costs on the basis of the assumption that, he, that, the, that uh, capacity didn't exist, uh, applied to seek costs as against the expert himself. Um, so Peter Smith, um, this was a relatively uh, new phenomenon in terms of what had to be considered, because, as you say, whilst obviously in Section 51 applications, there is a range of potential parties to that. 
Well, obviously, they're not all treated the same. So solicitors aren't treated the same as funders. Funders aren't treated the same as directors. And directors need not necessarily be treated the same as uh, experts. But um, Peter Smith, possibly not intending to lay down specific uh, criteria, but did point out that in order for a, an expert in a case to be liable to pay the costs of the opposing party, um, a high degree of proof would be needed to establish either the gross dereliction of duty by the expert or recklessness, or the expert had to be said to be in serious breach of his duty to the court by acting recklessly, irresponsibly, or wholly outside the bounds of um, how any reasonable expert would, would uh, act. So it's clearly higher than negligence, and the phrase used was flagrant disregard or gross dereliction of their duties. So you can see that he was certainly putting the uh, threshold for expert uh, to be found to be paying uh, to be found guilty, necessarily paid wasted costs, be a pretty high one. Yeah, and some similarities, uh, I suppose, in that regard with solicitors' wasted costs, perhaps. But on the facts of that case, where as you've explained, an expert folded essentially at trial having allowed a party to run up a, uh, a great amount of cost, did that pass the threshold on, on the facts of that particular case? Well, it, on the facts of that case, it did. So the, the matter that went on to the next stage was to determine whether, in fact, the expert had to pay costs. That part of the um, procedure was never um, reported. So we don't know what happened after that. Um, so all we have at that stage was um, what, in one view, might be considered to be the threshold criteria for moving to the next stage, which is whether in fact the expert should end up paying the costs. So we, we'll never know um, what happened to Phillips and Symes, in fact, whether the expert ended up paying costs or not. Right, but whether Peter Smith intended to lay down law or not, it, it doesn't seem to have, have really caught on in, in the early part after Phillips and, and Symes, um, and, until much later, as I say, we'll come on to have a look at some of those cases. But if, if you are a party, and you think you've got the ingredients of something beyond negligence meeting that high threshold test, what's the process that you have to go about securing a cost order? Well, I think if you're, if you're going to go on this particular route, and it's, it's uh, still an unusual route, then there's two things you can think about. First of all is your procedure, and secondly is your evidence. So in terms of procedure, the thing to think about is the point at which you're going to inform the expert that he or she is or may be the subject of a wasted cost application. Um, and at that point, whether you inform the court or whether you inform the expert, so that the expert can take appropriate um, steps to protect himself or herself in terms of, for example, obtaining representation. So the procedure is at least as important as the next bit, which is the evidence. And the evidence deals with, of course, whether in fact you can prove that on the assumption that the expert has fallen so far below the obligations they owe the court that they meet the relevant threshold criteria, where the fact you can establish that as a consequence of that, you as the relevant party have in fact lost money or not lost money as the case may be. Now, those two things may seem pretty obvious, but in the absence of fairly clear guidance on the point, at least up until recently, um, they aren't, uh, they are, they are steps which um, may be thought to be taken, but uh, sometimes parties have found themselves not meeting the necessary threshold of one or the other, in which case your application, whilst expensive and well-argued, fails. Right, so you, you've got to weigh up when to inform the expert. And is the 
is there an incentive to do so early? Well, we have, as you mentioned before, we have some guidance from the wasted cost jurisdiction in terms of uh, legal representative and particular solicitors. Um, there's a lot of case law on that. And the case law on that makes it very clear that um, a party that, uh, sorry, a non-party that may be the subject of a wasted cost order, and this is across the board, whether the solicitors or directors or anything else, should be informed at the earliest possible opportunity that they are to be the subject of a wasted cost order, or more importantly, that they may be the subject of a wasted cost order. The, the, the tipping point um, where that is is not entirely clear, but the danger is that if you are the applying party and you leave it too late, the party that is subsequently joined may well say that, in fact, the process has been unfair, and for that reason alone, when the court exercising its discretion, should exercise its discretion in their favour not to make the order. Yeah, and I suppose this is where some of the differences with the wasted cost regimes can start to be seen, because, of course, if you're a solicitor, you're much more intimately connected with the ongoing day-to-day -day litigation than you would necessarily be as an expert. And we know that in wasted cost cases, you don't have to join the solicitor's firm as a party, but is that the same with experts? Um, well, I think the difference between experts and solicitors is that, is that it's well known, I'm using solicitors as a generic legal term, but it's well known that um, in particular circumstances, if you meet the, the, the necessary uh, criteria in uh, Rydolsh and, uh, and uh, Horsefield, and you are either, um, uh, you've acted improperly or unreasonably or, or negligently in, in the waste and cost sense, that you may well be the subject of a, uh, an adverse cost order. It's not as immediately apparent to those who aren't party to the litigation and have no control of the litigation, experts being one of those. An expert would not ordinarily expect to find themselves to be a party, and an expert would not ordinarily find, expect to find themselves as a consequence of either their report or the way they give evidence to be in the firing line for costs. So they need to be treated slightly differently. And I say there, there is a danger that um, if you are the applying party and you leave it to the point, for example, beyond judgment into which the expert has had no input, and that as a consequence of that, you're using that judgment in order to springboard your application. Um, if the expert hasn't been forewarned uh, by that point, the expert may well say with some degree of force that um, they have been prejudiced in terms of the um, defending that particular application because they have not had an opportunity to have any input into the decision the judge made, which may well form the basis of the application itself. Right. Um, so let's say then you've made your decision and you've informed the expert early. You make your application to the court to join that expert as a party for potential cost order against them. Um, where did the court stand on that? Do they have set criteria by which they judge those sorts of applications to join? Well, um, again, uh, it rather depends on the party that's going to be joined. As you said at the very outset, uh, application to join third parties is not particularly uncommon, certainly since quarks. Funders are joined all the time. Directors aren't joined not infrequently, and um, the case of Rubiera indicates the circumstances in which that can happen. Um, but experts is a different kettle of fish entirely because you are seeking to join to the action um, a, an individual who is obliged by particular parts of the CPR to conduct themselves in a particular way. Now, um, a solicitor is obliged to act in the interest of his client. 
a funder is not obliged to act in any particular way at all, and, and a director is only obliged to offer to act in the best interests of the a company of which they are director and they owe certain obligations. But an expert is in a very different position. So um, the Symes case, which has recently come to the fore, um, has indicated that in that particular instance, um, the threshold is relatively high. And the difficulty there's been up until recently is because the cases which have been recently decided, and you'll be aware of Zafar and the uh, Timia case, um, have been so extreme that in terms of assisting anybody with the criteria, they've been particularly useless because it really hasn't been challenged that in those particular instances, the expert has plainly fallen well below the necessary threshold, as you know. Yeah, you, you mentioned Timia or Timaya. <laughs> Not quite sure how to pronounce it. You, you say Timia, I, I say Timaya. Um, that, that was, I think, the first time I really came across these sorts of applications in, in my clinical negligence practice. And that was the decision of Her Honour Judge Claire Evans in, in Manchester back in early 2020. It's one where the, the claimant's expert ended up being ordered to pay just shy of £90,000 worth of costs. So that was a, a clinical negligence case where the expert orthopaedic surgeon, who was Mr Jamil, uh, was said to be wholly unable to articulate the legal test for breach of duty. So it wasn't exactly spelled out in the judgment, but what I take from that is not just semantically or subtly inaccurate, but totally unable to state what the legal test was, which, of course, in clinical negligence cases is, is all important. Mr. Jamil was given a number of opportunities to correct himself it seems in cross-examination, but failed to do so. And the, the claimant was forced to discontinue the case mid-trial, immediately after their expert had, had given evidence. And so the defendant, not content with defeating the claim, applied for a cross order against the expert, and questioned whether they would have done that before the advent of, of the Cox regime. But I don't know what you thought about that one, Colin. The, the, decision that was seemingly on the basis of his woeful performance at trial, as well as on the basis that he wasn't competent to act as an expert in, in the case. What, what did you make of, of that judgment? Well, I think in terms of its, of its wider application, I, I suspect it's actually pretty limited for two reasons. First of all, um, the, the, the particular circumstances that were extraordinarily unusual. Um, but I suppose it might indicate that in circumstances where an expert purports to act as an expert in a particular discipline and doesn't have that expertise at all, that that might of itself be um, grounds for wasted costs, possibly. Um, and secondly, in, in Tamaya, um, I think the parties agreed between themselves that the appropriate test should be the wasted cost threshold for legal representatives, um, and therefore the judge didn't have to rule on that particular point at all. So in terms of establishing what the wasted cost threshold is for experts and whether it's different to that of solicitors, um, I don't think Tamaya uh, assists, but as I say, it may give some guidance to um, experts who would extremely rarely, I suspect, um, purport to have expertise that turns out they didn't have, or in the case of um, the Tamaya case, it uh, turns out that they had, uh, because of psychiatric difficulties, they shouldn't be acting as an expert at all. Yeah, and as you say, it's not quite clear the exact basis on which Mr Jamil was ordered to pay those costs, but certainly the two reasons that were, were put forward, or at least discussed in the judgment, were that 
so this was a, a negligently performed surgery case and he had performed the surgery in question but only twice in his entire career so question whether he is fit to act as a, an expert on mm. that basis but I think more importantly um, it was asserted that he wasn't fit to be an expert because of some psychiatric difficulties that he had which caused him to take a leave of absence from his clinical practice from 2017, such that he retired early the following year. And then he carried on doing expert medical legal work whilst he was unfit to work in, an in a hospital. So Mr. Jamil said it was only with hindsight after the trial that he realized he wasn't competent. And he also said that the reason he wasn't able to articulate what the Bowdoin test was at trial was because the defendant counsel's cross-examination reminded him of being interrogated in, in Iraq and of course some sort of extreme adverse psychiatric reaction. But, um, and again, well, that, that reflects well on the on the uh, cross-examiner, I think. Well, per, perhaps. I, I think it points to the high threshold and the extreme nature of these cases to get, a, get over the line for that sort of order. But it, in fact, that excuse was entirely rejected because it was found that he'd also been entirely unable to articulate the same test in another high court clinical negligence case, ZZZ and the Oval. Um, and his excuse in that case wasn't the same in, in that earlier case. He said just that he'd had a, a mental block and the judge in that case labelled it as, as palpable nonsense. So that was re rejected entirely. So it seems the basis of the decision wasn't just that he was a, a bad expert, but it was crossing that line, being improper or negligent to have failed to have given up his medico legal practice when he, he wasn't fit, or at least perhaps inform the, the parties or, or his instructing party, the claimant solicitors, of his mental health difficulties. Yeah, when there was there was um there's been a couple of other cases. There's a case called Safar. Um you may know about that one in which it appears that the expert was in, in cahoots with um, a firm of solicitors in order to generate false claims. Well, again, because that's such an extreme situation, uh, I'm not sure to what extent that really assists us very much with the Section 51 test. And then there's another one called Parent A against Parent B, in which the um, particular expert didn't give evidence at all, but um, continually failed to turn up to court or produce reports in accordance with court orders or turn up to joint reports and so on. And again, it, it, it's perfectly plain that that particular expert's conduct was such that it undoubtedly generated irrecoverable and wasted costs. So again, um, an unusual situation, but one in which I don't think really assists us very much with identifying what the threshold test really is. Yeah, um, so the, the most recent reported case that I can find was the holiday sickness case, Walker and, and Tui and Dr. Lee. Uh, and as luck would have it, Colin, you were instructed to represent the expert witness, Dr. Lee. So uh, can you tell us how things got to that stage in that case where a party made an application for a cost order against Dr. Lee? Well, that case is, is, is an excellent example of. Um, a party um, thinking that because they may have a good grounds for criticising the expert, that that's going to be sufficient to get them over the line. Um, Dr. Lee gave evidence uh, as a jointly instructed expert, um, and the defendant asked that he be attended court for cross-examination, which he did. Um, you'll probably know that a 
jointly instructed expert, according to a case called Popek, um, if you're going to instruct it, if you're going to cross-examine a jointly instructed expert, um, there are certain um, rules and criteria for doing that, not least of all that you ought to give them a heads up as to what it is you're proposing to cross-examine them about. And in particular, let them know if there's any material that um, you wanted to bring to court. Well, um, I think Dr. Lee was slightly surprised to be cross-examined as ferociously as he was, but the outcome of it was that the claimant's claim failed for two reasons. First of all, the judge didn't accept Dr. Lee's evidence. And that was partly because the, the court didn't accept the claimant's evidence either. So Dr. Lee um, was criticized in fairly robust terms in the uh, judgment. But of course, he wasn't made aware at any stage that in fact, the purpose essentially of the cross-examination and asking for it to be attended to court was not only to challenge him in terms of his, um, his views in this picture case, but his entire methodology. Um, and therefore the judge made, as I say, fairly robust criticisms of him at court. And it was sub subsequent to that judgment that the um, defendant then applied for him to be joined as a party. Um, now the matter came on for a two-day interlocutory hearing, now bearing in mind the trial itself was only one day, a two-day interlocutory hearing to determine whether in fact he ought to be joined. And the principal, um, and you'll see from the judgment, that the principal objection taken by Dr. Lee to the joinder was not necessarily about the um, nature of his evidence and how good or bad it was, but on the basis that the entire process was deeply unfair and that that unfairness couldn't be undone by the application and wasn't a breach of the overriding objective. All of which the judge, the same judge who had criticized him uh, in the uh, original action entirely agreed with. And I think um, if there's anything to be taken from that decision, there are probably four things. First of all, that a highly critical judgment as regards the evidence of an expert isn't of itself enough to get your application over the threshold. Secondly, that if you adopt what the court determines to be an unfair procedure, that will scupper what otherwise might be an unmeritorious, um, sorry, a meritorious application. Um, thirdly, that um, the court reiterated and essentially disagreed with uh, Tamaya that the threshold for experts being joined to an action on the basis of the evidence they give is, is the signs test and thereby endorse that as being um, and not the wasted cost order jurisdiction for, for uh, legal representatives. And I think lastly is that um, what the decision clearly shows is that it's not enough to establish that the expert's not that good. It's not enough to establish that the expert may well have breached their part 35 obligations. What you need to do is take the next step and prove by evidence that in fact, as a consequence of that, you as the, in this instance, the defendant have lost um, some of money and what that is. And in this particular instance, the judge in, an, in a range of findings found that the defendant has simply failed to evidence um, how they'd lost money and how that was connected to Dr. Lee's evidence. So um, the court never really got on to considering the nature and extent of the evidence because on a procedural basis, the defendant lost on all counts. Right, so this is mainly a procedural case about fairness of the experts and the topic that we discussed earlier on today um, when to make your application that seems to be a, a crucial matter but did the judge give any sort of indication as to whether they thought Dr Lee's evidence or performance as an expert might have got close to crossing this high threshold line? Well the judge um, 
didn't um, didn't roll back from any of her criticisms uh, um, in the at the trial, um, but did re did recognise that um, the failure to alert Dr. Lee to the fact that he's going to be cross-examined as a jointly instructed expert, and that um, the failure of the defendants to alert the judge to the various criteria for cross-examining jointly appointed experts for uh, joining of experts to cases such as the signed case, all of those meant that the process by which they had obtained their judgment adverse to Dr. Lee was an unfair one. Uh, and therefore the judges need to engage particularly with um, the, um, the, the nature of the evidence itself. But uh, importantly, the judge did indicate that the threshold concerned was very high, um, but certainly didn't give any indication that in fact, the judge thought that uh, he had crossed that in any way, shape or form. Right. And so this was a jointly instructed expert case. So in theory, is it possible for a party to recover costs against an expert that they instruct rather than an expert that's either jointly instructed or instructed by the other side? Well, uh, if, if it's your expert um, and things get that bad, that, that that's the route you want to go down. I mean, there are effectively three options there. You've got the Section 51 route, if you wish to, obtain, wish to go down that route. Um, a more direct route, of course, would be either in breach of express or implied terms of contract in terms of uh, the, the, if you instruct an expert on the basis they have expertise and turns out they don't, you may find it easier to sue them in contract rather than pursuing this particular route. And of course, they would owe you duties, direct uh, obligations of duties of care in negligence. None of which, of course, they don't owe any contractual duties or tortious duties to the defendant. Um, but arguably, in this particular instance, the defendant could, if they'd chosen to do so, pursue, pursue the um, wasted costs, sorry, the, the breach of contract route or the negligence route. They decided not to, um, but possibly because um, they were anxious to get a judgment in this particular instance, but sadly for them, it didn't work out. Right. So we're still in the position, perhaps it's because we're in the early days, we're only a few years into the, the Quox regime, but we, we'd imagine that there would be some more applications of these nature in the, in the coming years. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Um, possibly. I mean, the temptation is always there when you have an insured party like an expert. Um, and potential for, for applications, and certainly something that experts and people who instruct experts ought to be aware of. Given that this case would, until it's overturned or uh, distinguished by another decision, uh, it seems to set the bar high, it may well um, cool the appetite for uh, defendants in particular to pursue this particular route unless you think they've got an absolutely slammed on case, as they had in the other cases like uh, Timia and um, Zafar, um, where the expert conduct plainly crosses the, the necessary threshold irrespective of where you put it. Well, um, Zafar was a, a contempt of court committal case, wasn't yeah. it? Do, do yeah. you think it might be easier in some circumstances for the applying party to uh, apply to, to commit the expert to prison for, for contempt rather than getting a, a cost order against him, given how high the threshold is? Well, the, the, uh, it depends rather, I suppose, uh, from the, if, you, if you're the applying party, what the basis for the application is. If it's to recover costs of the litigation, then applying to, to commit them to prison may not necessarily achieve that aim. 
um, if the um, aim is to um, show a particular expert who's performing a particular task particularly badly that they're in contempt, but the threshold for contempt is particularly high. Um, I mean, we're talking um, fraud and dishonesty, which is what was alleged against Safar. It's perfectly, I mean, in, in any of these cases, including Tamaya, it's perfectly arguable that whilst their conduct was shockingly poor, and particularly in that instance, um, it didn't fall so far below the line that they were at risk of contempt um, because they, that, that's, a, that's a fairly high threshold. Whether the, the purpose of, um, for example, the committal of uh, fraud and claimants to, to, uh, to prison, uh, the purpose of that is not to recover costs generally, but the, is to uh, dissuade the others. I'm not sure many defendants, many experts need dissuading from um, conducting themselves poorly because, of course, you have, as the wasted cost jurisdiction cases show, you have, of course, the reputational issue. And that's a matter that the court said has to be taken into account when deciding whether, in fact, to make a wasted cost order against either legal representative and presumably by implication against an expert as well, the reputational damage that that may have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you. Is there anything else you think our audience should know about cases in this area? Um, other than the fact that um, um, if you don't want any blowback, it, it may be wise just to make your uh, expert aware, no matter what side you're on, that, that there is the possibility, however remote it might be, that, that these things may happen. Um, and if you're an expert, and I happen to be listening to this, uh, you may just want to check to make sure that, like Dr. Lee, um, you have the backing of your insurance company, should anything like this go badly wrong, because uh, only for that, I suspect, he may have been found himself in some difficulties in terms of having to pay for legal representation himself. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thank you very much, Colin. It's been enlightening. Um, so I think this is being put out as both a video and a podcast, and there'll be a handout as well, which you can access from the Hardwick website. So thank you for joining us today, and goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.